0: If I haven't had the, the privilege of meeting you, my name is Jeremy. I'm the student minister here at Emmanuel. Uh, Michael was away this week uh, out at the convention when he and his wife are visiting some of her family in the, in the Los Angeles area, and so I'm, I'm privileged to be able to open the word with you this morning. So the idea of fear and trust existing together with, within a relationship, that also, oftentimes seems you know, I- impossible to us, right? If fear is present in a relationship, then there's no way that trust can work its way in. But it can and it does happen in ways that are perfectly healthy. And one way that I think we see this, and I want you to think about it with me, is between little boys and their daddies. Now, it's not true for forever, but there is a a period in time, just a little window in the life of the little boy where, where this is true. You know, There's something about the relationship between a little boy and their dad where the child just recognizes my dad could punt me to Pluto if he so chose, if he decided to do it. And at the same time, while the little boy knows this, he also trusts that his dad isn't going to do that. Take, for example, a little boy who is supposed to be changing clothes when it's time for bed. Not that this ever happens in my house, I'm just throwing it out there as an example. You know, if the dad walks by when the child is supposed to be changing their clothes and the kid isn't, say, I don't know, maybe they're looking out the window to see the cars that are passing by on the on the street, and the child looks up and realizes that dad is standing there with that look of, I don't think that's what you're supposed to be doing, is it? And the child makes eye contact and goes, uh-oh. And they go to start ripping at their clothes as if they have ants in them because they have been caught. There's that that sense of fear. I don't want to be caught by Dad doing what I'm not supposed to be doing. And yet, minutes later, what do you see? They'll be cuddled up together, reading a book. or They'll be getting tucked in for bed with with plenty of of goodnight kisses. You know, there's the trust to, to draw near because Dad's affection For his Son has been made clear and is evident. And so you have fear and you have trust that are existing side by side. Last week in Psalm 32, uh, we saw the faithfulness of God to forgive sinners. You know, like Michael said, in in Psalm 32, David is making it a point to say, Learn from my mistakes. Initially, he kept... Excuse me. Initially, he kept silent rather than confessing his sins to God, and he, he suffered for it. But when he confessed his sins, God forgave him. And so he urges the congregation to confess sins because God is gracious to forgive. And he ended it with calls to shout for joy to the Lord. This is the proper response to the forgiving grace of God. And so there's a sense in which some of these these themes continue on into Psalm 33. The psalmist expresses trust in the Lord to deliver the faithful from death. This is based on confidence in the steadfast love of God. But the psalmist also shows us that those who trust in the Lord fear him as well. So let's read Psalm 33 together. Says this. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that we have Your Word, that You have inspired its writing, that You have preserved it for us, that in it we are led into what is true, not error. And so, Lord, I pray preach to us from your word. Speak to our hearts by your word. May your spirit move through your word in our hearts and our minds, opening our eyes to how glorious you are, and that you alone are worthy of praise. Conform us into the likeness of your Son. Empower us by your spirit that we may live a life of godliness pleasing to you. You do this by your word. Your word is powerful, and so work by it this morning. Amen. So I think the, the way to look at this psalm is to, to, to view it as maybe two acts. You have one act, and then it will transition to the other. And in the first act of the psalm, we see the absolute authority of God. It's the absolute authority of God. Now, Psalm 33, you might have noticed, it begins right where Psalm 32 ends. Not just because you know they're buttoned up next to one another in the Psalter, but literally the words flow. Uh, it ends with calls for, shouts for joy. there's this, this threefold call that we see for songs of, of praise to God. The righteous will shout for joy. They will then express thanks to God through musical instruments. Both come together in verse three, where singing and instruments are used in the shouts of joy, in the singing of a new song to the Lord. And so keeping Psalm 32 in mind, we can say that, that verses 1 through 3 deals with those who have confessed their sins and have been forgiven by God. And so there's this, this tight little connection between Psalm 32:11 and 33:1 that helps us to see this. In verse 11 of Psalm 32, you have, "The righteous, they rejoice." Well, then look at Psalm 33:1, "The righteous shout for joy." In verse 11 of Psalm 32, the upright. Shout for joy. In verse 1, it is praise that is fitting for the upright. Songs of praise are the right response for those who are, are trusting that God forgives sinners. He hears confessions of sin and responds with grace to the poor in spirit. It's confidence, then, in the character of God that produces songs from his people. Look at verses 4 and 5. We see that the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice, and the world is full of his steadfast love. And so what we're seeing is that the character of God is inseparable from his word, and his word is inseparable From his works. Everything that he does is consistent with his pure and faithful character. And so his people respond to him with praise and adoration. His perfection demands shouts of joy. And so for us, this is very clarifying as to why we gather week after week and sing. It's not because it's, it's just what you do on a Sunday morning. It also means that we're not free to just sing the songs that we like and sit out the ones that we don't. It also means that we're not free to not sing because we're like, no one in this room wants to hear me try. No one wants to hear that come out of my mouth. We gather to sing Because the Lord has commanded His people to do so. And the Lord is right to do this. The Lord is right to prescribe for His people how they will worship Him. And the first three verses of this psalm makes that clear to us. To sing to the Lord is a fitting response from those who have had their sins forgiven. You probably also notice that it says to, to play skillfully. You may look at that and go, okay, why, why this? Why is this here? Well, I heard a, a pastor and, and theologian say recently that in their own church, they, they, they and their elders, they were trying to work this out and, and figure out, okay, what, how does play skillfully come to bear? And they came to the conclusion, and I, I think it's right, that this, this doesn't mean professionally. We should not expect the ones who are leading us to put on a perfectly polished performance for us to sit here and consume. We're not coming in going, what I expect on that stage is something worthy of me paying to go see. Because our singing is not a performance to consume It's a service that we are commanded to participate in. The Lord has invited us to come in together and to worship Him through song. You are invited to participate in the worship of God through song. And in so doing, we're expressing the worthiness of God to be praised. And yet, we would also agree that that doesn't mean that it can just be slopped together. We just roll out of bed and whatever happens, happens. You know, the, the, the text is, is clear about that as well. And so I'm thankful and I hope that we're all thankful for Tom and for all of those who lead us in and through the music ministry. They all work really hard and they work very, very, they work very, very hard and they lead us very, very well. But the, their hard work isn't to produce a performance simply for us, for our enjoyment. It's because the Lord is worthy, and we come together to express that in song, because our singing is to the Lord. Thanksgiving is to him. Praise is directed to him, all because of who he has revealed himself to be. And of course, there's another sense in which our singing is to one another. Our singing is to come together and to remind one another, this is who God is. This is who we have gathered to worship. This is why we are here. Be reminded of who it is you have gathered to praise. I realize, and the psalm speaks to coming and singing with joy. Shout for joy in the Lord is the instruction. And I recognize that there are many times and for many reasons in which we may come into this room... And the words are on the screen, and our mouth is, is moving. We're saying the words, and yet the idea of singing songs to, of, to pr, of praise to God with joy, it's, it's just not there. We're in sorrow. We're in pain. We're suffering. And this is where the our coming together to sing to one another, or to sing to the Lord and to one another, is a grace of God in which we remind one another of who it is that we have come to worship and to serve, of who it is that we have come to praise. And the words themselves are a salve, an ointment for us, to remind us that, yes, in the midst of my sorrow, in the midst of my despair, this is who God is, and he is good. Singing is a grace of God to his people. Through song, we are reminded of His greatness and His power. And in that regard, we need to keep following the flow of the psalm. We move from praise of God for the splendor of His perfection to all of God for His absolute power over the world. In verses 4 and 5, the word and works of God Uh, uh, manifest His faithfulness and perfection. And then verses 6-11, through His words display His sovereign power over all things. The Word of God is upright, and it is also effective. What He declares to happen, it happens. First, this is emphasized through the account of creation. The Lord spoke, and the heavens came into being. Sun, moon, and stars all took their place to perform the duties that He gave to them. The waters do as He commands as well. He scoops them up and He puts them away at His discretion. And th- th- this seems to be referencing the chaotic state of the world at creation. But what was chaotic and disordered, the Lord, with just a word, put into order. He said, jump, and the waters said yes, sir, how high? His Word in creation is absolute. Everything was made and it was ordered just by the breath of His mouth. It's amazing. But we need to pause here and we need to really think about the implication of of God's creating work. And the reason I say that is because I think it's really unfortunate That The creation account, it becomes so familiar to us. It, It just becomes old hat. We come to the creation account, and we're like, okay, I get it. God made the stuff. He made all the stuff. And we become more engaged with questions like, okay, well, how old is the earth? And that's not to say that that's not an important question, and that's not worth having a conversation about. Of course, other people, I may bring that up, and they may be like, please, please don't. Please don't go there. It may sound like nails on a a, a chalkboard to you. But we're so familiar with the creation account that we'll acknowledge its importance. We'll say, well, yeah, it's in the Bible, so of course it's important, but then we treat it like it's a prologue. Sure, it's part of the book, but it's not where the real action is. But this, this neglects the importance of the creation account to everything else that follows. Genesis 1 screams at us, you are not the one who is in charge. Everything in existence has come into being because he told it to. The Lord, the one true God, he is in charge. Everything that came into being didn't just set itself up. It went where he said to go. And so the psalmist is emphasizing the Lord's absolute power over all that he has made. And his point is that this should produce a healthy fear of the Lord. And he defines it there in verse 8 as uh, standing in awe of God. And so, let's think about that. I mean, we're wowed by a lot of different things. You might be mesmerized by a beautiful sunset. I I love my five-year-old who may or may not have been the kid from the beginning, who when he sees a beautiful sunset, it's just like, wow, mom, dad, look at the sunset. We all have that experience of being mesmerized by a beautiful sunset. And you might go to the mountains, and in the height of a mountain range, just take your breath away. You might stand in front of the Grand Canyon and just stunned at silence, un, uh, just not believing what your eyes are seeing. You may have the sea stretching out in front of you, just going on for miles and miles and miles into the horizon until you can't see it anymore. And that might make you feel small. And the Lord, with just his breath, just a word, brought it all into existence. Too often we come to our Bibles and we read about the sovereign power of God and we just gloss right over it. Our minds are wandering as we think about the things that we have to do that day. And we pay little attention to what the words of Scripture are shouting at us. Behold the Lord. Behold His might. Be in awe of Him. Be captivated by His majesty. Psalm 33, 8 commands that. The one who spoke and all things came into being deserves and rightly demands that we be awed. By the absolute power of His Word. And verse 8 serves to show what the appropriate response to the power of God should be. It says that all the peoples of the world should fear God for His absolute power. Being confronted with the mind-blowing scale of God's power should put a little quiver in the liver. But that's not the case. Verse 10, I think, is calling us back to Psalm chapter 2, where you might remember there... It talks about the peoples. It says that the peoples plot in vain and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. We do not want the rule of God. Man does not want to submit to the authority of his word. And yet man's best efforts and best plans are nothing before the absolute authority with which God rules his creation. Though the nations rage against the Lord, their planning comes to nothing. The decree of man fades before the righteous decrees of God. And think about this in tandem with what we see in verses 6 and 7. The Lord by his word created all things and put them in order according to his righteous character. But the man that he made to spread his rule through creation rebelled against him. Mankind has been in rebellion ever since. This is our default position. Rather than giving God the praise that he deserves, our natural bent is to turn everything inward because we want to be in control. But man's plans are futile. We can speak and say whatever we want, but our plans, our our words, are subject to the plans and purposes of God. His word prevails. Man's plans are brought to nothing before the sovereign power that God has over his creation. That God's plans never fail, displays his absolute rule over his creation. He speaks, and the whole world springs into into existence. What he decrees in his creation, it happens. His word is final. There isn't a higher court that can be appealed to who might overturn his rulings. His sovereign power over all the world is absolute. And so this turns our attention back to verse 8. God's absolute power as creator and ruler should inspire absolute awe of him. Those who fear the Lord are the ones who praise the Lord. Those who do not fear the Lord plan and scheme to be free from his rule... This is foolish. The necessity of the fear of the Lord was established back in Psalm 2:11. So at the beginning of Psalm 2, you have the peoples uh, raging, the nations raging, the peoples plotting in vain, uh, the kings uh, seeking to bring counsel against the Lord and his anointed. But by the time you get to the end of Psalm 2, in verse 11, the kings that have been set against God are told to be wise, to serve the Lord with fear. The only legitimate response to the sovereign power of God is to serve him with trembling. Wisdom in the face of God's absolute power is to fear the greatness of his strength. But we're not just left with fear of the Lord. The psalmist shows that those who rightly fear the Lord do so with full trust in him. And so that's the second act of the psalm, responding to God's sovereign rule. Just keep following the, the, the flow of the text. I've seen the council of the nations is brought to nothing. They scheme against the Lord, but He is in full control. But now the text begins to narrow in on the Lord's sovereign care for His people. In verses 13 through 15, the searching eye of the Lord is in view. And it's emphasized three times. In verse 13, He's looking down from heaven, In verse 14, he looks out. And what the text is doing here is it's bringing his rule back into view. He is enthroned in the heavens, but he isn't detached from his creation. He is above it, and yet also intimately involved in it. And so from his heavenly throne, he looks down on mankind. But then in verse 15, it brings the relationship of man to God Into even sharper focus. He who gathered the waters with his breath has fashioned the hearts of man within them. And having made us, he sees and he knows all that we do. And we should stop and consider that in light of the text from last week, in in light of Psalm 32 in which in some sense we are to be reading Psalm 33 in light of that, this should serve as a warning for those who ignore the call from Psalm 32 to confess sin. Maybe you had unconfessed sin that you was brought to mind in the middle of the sermon as you were reading through the text, and you felt the need to confess those sins, but by the time you got to lunch, that had faded away. That was all gone. Maybe as it's, we're working through the text, you felt like, man, I, I really hope that person is listening. You knew all about their sin and, and really hoped that they were listening, and yet you never stopped and considered the, the need to confess your own sins. Maybe it's fear of what people will think if, if, if you confess that, that, that prevents you from, from doing so. But the one who fashioned your heart observes all your deeds. You can hide your addictions, your bitterness, your anger, your greed, your pride from people, but not from the Lord. He who forms the heart observes all that man does and thinks and feels. There is no salvation to be had apart from the Lord. That's what verses 16 and 17 tell us. The nations, from verse 10, whose counsel is brought to nothing, seek salvation in their might. They arrogantly put all their hopes in their own strength. But this is futile. So then salvation cannot be found anywhere but in God. But, when you do not want the rule of God, it naturally follows that you would seek salvation in yourself. Those seeking salvation in armies and might are characterized by arrogance and pride. This is, take up your bootstraps. You can do it. You can manufacture your own salvation. But the eye of the Lord isn't just observing the arrogant kings and peoples and all of their foolishness. His eye is on those who fear him as well. The one who hopes in his steadfast love is the one that he saves, the one that he delivers from death. And so this raises a question for us that you maybe had a few minutes ago when we were looking at verse 8. What is fear of the Lord? Well, we saw that the psalmist refers to it as the awe of God. But the fear of God is also defined by the response to his sovereign power. It's not just a feeling like I'm afraid of the dark or I'm afraid of spiders. To fear God is to recognize his absolute power and the appropriate response to his rule. We saw a a failure to respond appropriately in the nations. We see that again in the kings and all those who trust in their own might. This is foolish. This is not the fear of the Lord. One who fears the Lord responds in wisdom. This means responding with submission and devotion to the Lord. And this is a problem for us all. Because the question that naturally follows is okay, who fears God? Well, Paul answers this for us in Romans 3, quoting from Psalm 36, which we'll look at in just a couple of weeks. He says, talking about all of humanity, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And we want to come to this and be like, yeah. That world out there, there's no fear of God in it. But the problem is, is that none of us are inclined towards the fear of God. We all want to take hold of our life, to pick, up our, pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, to control our, our own destiny. But it wasn't so with Christ. Isaiah speaks of the righteous branch that would come from the line of David in, in Isaiah 11. There in Isaiah 11, 2, and first part of 3, says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Christ not only perfectly feared the Father, what we see is that it was his delight. Christ's submission and devotion were perfect. When tested in the wilderness, when offered the kingdoms of the world without the cross, he was faithful to the Father. When his hour came to suffer the wrath of God for sinners, he was faithful to the Father. He suffered that those who do not fear God, who rightly deserve death, so that in his death, They may be saved. He suffered in their place for those who don't fear the Lord. The death and resurrection of Christ puts the absolute power of God on full display. By His Word, He spoke and all things came into existence. By His his Word stands and it will never be thwarted. And by His Word, the incarnate Word He crushes the power of sin and death. His righteousness and justice are displayed in the satisfaction of his wrath against the sins of his people in the cross of Christ. His faithfulness and steadfast love are on display in the deliverance of Christ from death. Christ, the innocent sufferer for his people, was raised, and in his resurrection, the fullness of of verses 18 and 19 of Psalm 33, is seen. That's why His people hope in His steadfast love and trust in His holy name. Because He not only forgives sins, but supplies the only means by which sins may be forgiven, the death and resurrection of Christ. And this this speaks to the foolishness of those who arrogantly seek salvation by their own strength. Do you look to yourself for salvation? The psalmist makes it clear that the Lord alone has absolute authority over all that He has made. Look to Christ and trust in Him alone for salvation. The electing love that God has for His people in Christ is the basis for our trust in Him. That's what we see in verses 20 and 22 the blessed nation back looking back at verse 12 the blessed nation who are the people whom god has chosen wait for him they trust that the steadfast love of god will be upon him upon them the whole first act of the psalm makes clear that this trust is not only reasonable but it is wise god's might and his power are second to none. So those whose eye is, who his eye is upon can have full confidence in the salvation that he supplies. There's no need to look anywhere else, particularly themselves, because salvation is found nowhere else. And so they're glad in him. He is the one who saves. And so in Christ, the fear of God and the trust of God come together for the people of God. And we maybe want to push against the idea that the one who is in Christ needs to fear God. And I think we do that because we know what it says in 1 John 4, where it reads that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But you have to keep reading. You have to read what comes next. It says, for fear has to do with punishment. This isn't the fear of the Lord that characterizes God's people. Those who are in Christ trust that the punishment for their sin has been fully dealt with in Christ. There is no more wrath left for them. In Christ, there is the trust to draw near to God. His steadfast love is set upon those united to Christ by faith. There is the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we had read to us just a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 4. And yet, there is a healthy fear of God because we see the fullness of God's wrath against sin in the crushing of Christ. In Christ, there is salvation from the wrath of God. But the wrath of God remains on those who are outside of Christ. And so what we need to understand is that the fear of God actually serves to preserve trust in Christ for the Christian. You might think of it like someone walking down a path who knows that down the path well behind them, but still on the path behind them, is a lion. So long as they continue moving forward, they're fine. But if they turn back, they'll be devoured. The Christian recognizes that in Christ there is salvation. Those who persevere in Christ are saved. Those who turn from Christ meet face to face with a lion. Christ and his just wrath against sin. God uses the fear of his coming judgment to hold those who are his in the love of Christ. Christians, by his grace, do not want to be found outside of Christ. And so we hold fast to Him. And yet we face regular temptations to look away from Christ and to trust in our own might. Pride, in particular, threatens us. You may be tempted to get puffed up when you feel that you've conquered a sin. But if you've truly conquered it, you did so by the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that you'll need to conquer the next one and the next one and the next one. So don't grow proud as if you worked up the courage and the might to put to death sin in you. It's the grace of God. Don't fall in your arrogance. Maybe you get frustrated with people who don't sin like you. You just can't understand why they keep sinning in ways that just aren't a temptation to you. But it's not your strength that keeps you from slipping into that specific temptation. And it's not your strength that helps you overcome the sins that do tempt you. So be gracious to one another, as God in Christ is gracious to us. Maybe you refuse to receive correction. You don't see anything wrong with yourself. And so when someone corrects you, you get defensive. That's the fruit of putting confidence in your own abilities. You respond negatively when you feel like your abilities are questioned. Because in reality, you take it as an attack on yourself. That's looking to yourself for salvation. That's not what trust in Christ produces. And so look to Christ. And in the fear of the Lord, trust in his steadfast love. Because he delivers his own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather this morning. We thank you for your word and for the work that it does in the hearts of your people. And we pray that you would work through your word this morning. Come no.